drew me to WorkRamp and to the industry in general is just, I really like to be in a position where it's a mature market that needs, you know, a refresh. And that is exactly what we're doing at WorkRamp. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am excited to welcome Jack Foster to the show. Jack, I throw all my guests under the bus and ask you to do an intro of yourself and your interesting work for the audience that doesn't know you yet. But welcome, and it's awesome to chat with you today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So yes, my name is Jack Foster. I lead the marketing team at WorkRamp. And WorkRamp is a learning cloud. We are the learning cloud. We power all of your employee and customer learning on one single platform. So very excited to be here today. Excited to jump into the conversation with you. I am a huge knowledge management and e-learning and you know, sort of culture type of organizational development person. I love sales enablement. I mean, there's so much there. I read what you all are doing. There's, you know, the old school way of saying it's an LMS. I suspect that, you know, like becoming a learning cloud is much more advanced than that. So fill us in because I have been in e-learning for years and I'm interested in what the next evolution is. So what really drew me to work ramp into the industry in general is just, I really like to be in a position where it's a mature market that needs, you know, a refresh. And that is exactly what we're doing at work ramp. If you think about the legacy of what an LMS is to organizations, you know, in the past, it's been a product that probably sits in the background that you maybe jump on to do compliance training or security training or something that you probably don't want to do, some type of training that you probably don't want to do. You try to click your way through it. It's not engaging. You don't really feel like you learned something, right? And you just want to get it over with. And we really look at in our company, you know, we see it with our customer base. We look at learning as actually a way to propel your business forward. If you think about, you know, your best trained reps, your best employees who are upskilling themselves, who are, you know, trying to become the best performers they can, you can do that with the right learning experiences, with the right training. And on the customer side of things as well, the best trained customers, the customers that know how to use your product well, that you're, you know, helping them accelerate their careers, helping them accelerate their businesses it's going to propel business forward, right? And so we're really redefining the LMS as one of the most strategic investments that a company can make. And then just on more of the product side, you know, traditional LMSs have really been more focused on like L&D teams, one size fits all, right, across the organization. We have multiple use cases. We're solving multiple problems for customers with one learning cloud. You can power all of your learning from one spot. You don't need multiple tools to do your customer education, to do your partner enablement, to do your employee onboarding, to do your sales enablement. 
we can help you solve all of those challenges with our single solution. So yeah, that's the overview of WorkRamp. And the next evolution really of the LMS is the learning cloud and everything I just described. Yeah. Training and learning and development is like, it's so odd because it's the thing that people always say, well, if I just had more training, but then, you know, I've seen this, you give people training to do and they hate it and they don't want to, you know? So if we just had more training, but we don't want to do training, so, you know? And so like the recasting of that, I think is exactly right. Everybody wants to learn. They don't want to learn the way they don't feel good learning. You know, it's just this weird sort of dance that we need information. We need to learn more things. And how do you make that not suck? No, exactly. And that's going back to what I said about it just being like kind of this thing that you might have dread, right? If you've been in business for a long time, you know, every year you're like, oh, I have to go do these things. We want to make learning engaging. There's different ways that people learn, right? We recognize that. And so that's also a big part of our, you know, mission is to have amazing learning experiences for, you know, for the people actually using the product. I mean, what's the difference then with an amazing experience versus what people have come to, you know, understand of training that isn't fun? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to how can you engage your audience, right? And so different modalities is really important. Again, if you're sitting in front of a one hour video, you know, absorbing a ton of information, that's probably not, it's dry information, right? It's probably not going to be the most engaging experience for a learner. So being able to incorporate video or challenges you know, quizzes within the path that they're on, different ways just to actually engage. Micro learning is really important as well, being able to have kind of bite-sized, you know, places that people can consume information, get tested on it, retain it. So it's really about engagement, learner engagement and providing an engaging experience for the people that actually go through those trainings and those learnings. I work with a number of instructional designer types in various ways. And you're using the language of a lot of those folks and micro learning and engagement and, you know, sort of all these things. Was that new and in your context of coming into the set of language? That's not marketing language. No, I mean, you know, one of the first things that I did, I will get back to your question, but I'll have a story around how I got there. One of the first things that I did when I joined WorkRamp was I actually asked to be set up with you know, 10 of our customers across multiple use cases, just to honestly learn about, you know, what do they love about WorkRamp? What's their experience with LMSs and the industry overall? Where is there room for improvement? Where do they go to learn and get information from? And part of that was actually understanding how they talk, right, about the industry, things that they care about. And so I learned a lot about some of the things I just talked about and those, you know, conversations when I first joined WorkRamp. And then of course, you know, ongoing as the leader of the marketing team, it's my job to really understand how our customers talk about their challenges, the language that they're using. And so one of our values here is customer focus and on the marketing team specifically, you know, we are constantly trying to just, again, hear how customers talk about their problems and use their language. And so, yeah, I would say some of this was new to me, of course, coming into this. I didn't come from a background. I come from a background in HR tech, but not necessarily e-learning or corporate learning space. And so did a lot of, you know, I've been learning, honestly, since the year and a half that I've been here on just what some of those terms are. And I'll just also add that internally, we have a lot of amazing SMEs, right, who you mentioned instructional designers. We have, you know, instructional designers that provide professional services to our customers. You know, we have 
people that have come up through enablement. We obviously have a VP of people who, you know, understands L&D. And so also learning from our internal SMEs in addition to our customers and sales team has been a big part, you know, is a big part of my job and it's something that, you know, I took really seriously coming into the company. Yeah, that's very cool. Gosh, as a sales person in B2B, you know, sales enablement is so important. And just, I'm just drooling a little bit, imagining, wow, what if sales enablement was like automatically into bite-sized micro learning? That's exactly the stuff that we need. And so often in my seat, you know, in sales, we end up with this sort of like, well, here's your 87 page deck in nine point font from the product marketing team. And, you know, like, go ahead. But these are our main points. And you're kind of going, well, okay, nobody's going to consume that. So you get into the content game, you know, from I think a lot of end users who are looking at an audience need this type of different modalities. That's absolutely right. If you want to convey information, the audience matters. Yeah, no, for sure. It's so funny. We are, you know, we have a product marketing team. We're working on a rollout of our corporate pitch deck right now, right to our sales organization. And you're hitting the nail on the head. Like you, you know, eating in our own restaurant, drinking our own champagne at work ramp. We are putting together an engaging, consumable guide, you know, which is obviously a part of our product so that our sales team can really get to know how to use the deck, practice using it. And there's different ways that they're, you know, within that guide that they're going to learn how to use the deck, not just here's, you know, your hundred slides, go figure it out for yourself. So funny that you mentioned that because we're in the process of actually doing that right now. Painful. It's painful. You know, (laughs) hey, yeah, like we're going to give you this, you know, huge deck of the way you should talk about all the things with the real humans that you actually talk to. And you know, I'm not picking on marketing. Like, I get it. Like, you have to, there's so much alignment that takes place there. And how do you make messaging, you know, across the org that fits the people who need to have the one-on-one, you know, conversations, none of which are actually the average ICP, you know, (laughs) like they're a component of the average and all have their own, you know, individual weirdness. And I think it's so much about, if I could have my wish, bottom of funnel, it would be not just micro learning, but almost like a just in time access to, you know, like I need to answer this very tiny thing when I need to answer it and show it. And, you know, the ability to endlessly slice and dice sounds compelling. Yeah. The last thing I'll say too, just going back to your point that reps, you know, are going to use it in different ways. Like one of this kind of goes into marketing land too, which is fun part of what I'm about to say. But even as we're rolling out this deck, right? Like one of the things we want people to do is actually use it in a real conversation, record themselves and gong. And then, you know, they can upload that back into work ramp as, yep, I'm starting to actually use this language and stuff. But then we also get that feedback loop too of like, actually, how is this landing? Are people able to like grok the, you know, the way we're talking about things or customers responding to that? So it's a really nice, you know, we're meshing the two topics here, marketing, which I'm passionate about and learning, but you kind of get where I'm going with the ending part of this part of the talk. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, and I love that because one of the most challenging things is how do you take, how do, how can sales folks on the front lines, you know, reverse educate the rest of the organization? Cause that's actually the customer discovery interview on repeat hundreds of times. Yeah. And uh, every cold call, every, you know, outreach, every demo, but it's 
very hard to aggregate that. And, you know, yes, tools like Gong and, you know, all those things. But at the end of the day, you still have hundreds of these. <laughs> what do you do with them? And how can you feed that intelligence back up? I think that's one of the hardest, you know, internal learning challenges that you could face in any big org now. Now it's, it's a meaty topic for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You've had meetings about this. I can tell. Cool. You know, I'd love to talk about your path to, you know, getting here. You have recognizable logos all up and down your extensive resume, and you've had some awesome experiences, you know, through that journey. I, maybe, you know, we have a, obviously a short time, but can you still, you know, the story of that and the lessons learned along the way? Cause I think those are always compelling. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Thanks for asking. So I started my career in tech in 2008 at a company called ZA Technologies. And ZA Technologies at the time was, you know, a public company, like 14,000 employees large. And we were selling into, for the most part, the, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 organizations like True Enterprise complex software. They started in mainframe. But when I joined the company, I actually joined a business unit that was focused on selling through channel. And it was a two-tier distribution model. And we were selling backup and recovery software to SMBs and mid-market. And so one of the big you know, learnings at being at CA was just starting to see that cadence of what it looked like to work at a public organization and just understanding the short-term pressure, I guess, on what it means to work in a public company and just, you know, meeting what your guidance is and all of those things. So started to get exposure to that. And then also the other big thing while I was there, I mean, cutting my teeth in marketing, obviously doing lots of different jobs and just trying to become a better marketer over time. But one of the other things is I got, really got a good understanding of channel sales, you know, partner marketing and demand gen marketing. So marketing both to the partner, what it is, a partner program, how that is all managed, then also, you know, needing to market to customers and what demand gen really meant, what was for us like generating demand through our partners. So that was super interesting, a, a very interesting business model. The really interesting thing that happened to me though, while I was at CA is that the business unit got carved out to private equity. And at that time I'd made my way into a leadership position. So I had a front row seat at, you know, some of the inner workings of what a carve out looks like. And it was super interesting. We're a hundred million dollar company, like 40,000 customers worldwide at the time that the carve out happened. And we weren't standing up. It wasn't a brand new company because obviously we had a footprint and, you know, had seen pretty significant success. But there was a lot of things that we had to stand up as our own organization getting out of CA. And so that was really my first, you know, exposure to like what a board was, right? We had now private equity investors who, you know, wanted to learn inner things about our business, you know, metrics, honestly, that I'd never heard of at that point in my career, things like that, that, you know, I, again, got more exposure to. But at that time, I was living in San Francisco. And I, you know, in the middle of Silicon Valley, startup land, and I'm like, private equity is cool. But let's see what the venture side of the house looks like. I'm going to, you know, see if I can get into a startup and see what that experience is like. And so that's when I made my way to Lever. There were about 60 employees when I joined Lever. I was the fifth marketing hire. We had just hired our CMO and she hired me to take on demand gen and marketing operations at Lever. Again, kind of a completely different 
motion there because we announced our Series B when I got there and we saw hyper growth, right? Got all the way past Series C while I was there. We doubled our customer number while I was there, more doubled ARR while I was there, more than doubled employees while I was there. So it's just like in hyper growth mode and real building mode. I mean, of course, at ArcServe that had been carved out from CA, we were doing a lot of building, but this was like building from the ground up, right? And so that was awesome. You know, I loved my experience at Lever, also my first foray into HR tech. Then ended up going to SurveyMonkey, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. I joined right when we were starting to put the gas on our enterprise business. And so, you know, 20-year-old company, you know, that was basically, you know, take out your credit card, all of a sudden moving into more of a sales-assisted motion and bigger deals, you know, more fuel the enterprise motion that everyone knows what that means. And had the opportunity to build out the global demand gen and marketing operations function for our enterprise business there. We went IPO while I was there. So that was really interesting seeing kind of the transition from private to, you know, after that whole rebrand too, right? Like momentum. Yeah. At the end of my time there, we rebranded to Momentum, which was an incredible experience. I mean, it was all with the eye toward, you know, people knew SurveyMonkey, but they knew it exactly as a self-serve kind of, you know, playful, not necessarily associating it always with enterprise. And so that's why we branded to Momentum. So really, you know, tons of learnings from that experience as well. And then, you know, here I am at WorkRamp. So had a lot of different business models that I've seen. I've seen a lot of phases of growth, you know, obviously startup all the way to public. So it's been cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know, compare and contrast, you know, you talked about like, oh, it was cool to learn, you know, hyper growth VC versus private equity versus, you know, all these things. And I think those are, it's interesting because I don't think those are dimensions that everybody looks at as much when they are choosing their next adventure. And that, you know, that financial sort of format is an interesting way to view it. And you know, the size of company and speed and hyper growth and just all these things. If you're looking for next opportunity, that's an interesting rubric that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. You know, when we went from in the carve out specifically going to private equity, there was just a lot, not that it hadn't been in focus, but there was a lot of focus. Like the main focus really became around efficiency, operational efficiency, like that became profitability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people don't do um, private equity unless they want to make a discernible return on investment. Yeah, exactly. You know, you have to really know your metrics. You have to be predictable and everything just had to be super efficient. And so we were trying to, you know, build a business like as efficiently as possible. And I'm not saying it was necessarily, we weren't trying to be efficient, but when you go, you know, we were trying to just grow when I got to Lever. So it was just a little bit of a different, you know, a different, Oh yeah. Like you don't worry as much about profitability and like attribution. And it's just like, nobody's going to grill you about like exactly how did that lead get through the pipeline from demand gen? Like you kind of go, we need to do demand gen and everybody goes, okay. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. It's like, you're kind of more optimizing and especially at the size of business ArcServe was, um, you know, get a hundred million dollar company. Whereas, you know, I was in single digit ARR when I joined Lever. So it was much more about building, much more about putting like foundational things in place. So those were, I mean, just a different experience overall. And just the North Star, I guess, that we cared about at the company was just different. I mean, you're you're trying to grow overall, but you get what I mean in terms of efficiency versus. I do. 
Yeah. It's um, impossible then, to explain all the things, you know, so well, I so understand. It, <laughs> it is impossible. Broadly speaking, we're not going to just, you know, slam down on any given point, but you're right that they have a different disposition, I think is the, yes. the way to focus. And, you know, of course we eventually want to make money, but right now we want to spend some more money than we make. And, you know, so, yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, again, it was really, I had worked at CA, which was a public company, but I was just more senior in my career when I joined Sunbury Monkey and saw the transition from, you know, private to public and also just the growth in enterprise going from just a straight up PLG led motion to also adding our sales assisted motion. So just got exposure to the, you know, what PLG, like how PLG can be so effective for growth in an organization. You know, we had like 17 million active users in the SurveyMonkey database when I was there. And, you know, how do you take all of the different signals that those users are giving you as they're using your product and who's right for enterprise? And so just a ton of learnings on that front, as well as, again, going in after IPO, really getting more of a close-up look at the expectations on short-term, you know, quarterly meet your numbers versus like, how are you making long-term investments for growth? So it was really like watching that balancing act was really interesting. And I learned a lot, honestly, from it. And now at Workram, back at, you know, back at more of a startup, but obviously with a different market environment than where I was at Lever. And so both looking at growth, but efficient growth now, you know, as we're heading into 2023 here. Absolutely. So personal journey, then I hear a lot of learning. I hear a lot of different experiences. Like talk to me about like, just, you know, you're a, a leader, right? And we talk to a lot of leaders and it's like, what are your leadership philosophies. You know, it's like you have staff, you have people that depend on you, you have people you report to. And I always like just get into that as like, okay, what makes you tick and be successful in that leadership seat? I believe that you have to hire all of the right people because it's truly a one team effort to get to be successful. And I really look at my role and one of my strengths as being almost like the cheerleader for the team, right? And helping people be giving direction, setting the vision, setting expectations is my job. But then you kind of have to get all of the roadblocks out of the way so that people can go and be successful. And that's important to me that, you know, teams can collaborate, that teams can challenge. I think that having, you know, big audacious goals that everyone is aligned around that you set from the beginning of the year. I could tell you a couple of things we're, you know, going after in marketing this year, but I think you need to have, again, set the strategy. How are you going to measure that? What are the most important things that people are working on? And then you got to cheer them on and let them go, you know, do the work. So and that's the type of leader that I am. You know, I also really believe that, you know, being in marketing and especially coming from a revenue marketing background or a demand gen marketing background, it's really critical that we are extremely aligned with the rest of the go-to-market organization and, you know, again, metric or gold on the same things that sales and customer success are gold on. And that's really how I think, you know, marketing specifically should be gold and how marketing can be successful. So those are just some of my initial thoughts, but happy to dig into any anything. There. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I love revenue. So, you know, that's always a good thing. And, you know, it. Everybody I, I am personally <laughs> glad that over the course of years of doing, you know, these types of conversations, I have seen the movement to revenue marketing, you know, real time that we're not 
companies that shouldn't be talking about spending a ton of money on brand voice are actually talking about demand gen and revenue alignment. And like that just warms my money heart. So, <laughs> so as a sales guy down at the bottom, it's good to have yeah. that alignment. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen the shift as well. I, you know, as a marketer in my career where it was a little bit, it was harder to tie marketing to revenue. And so of course, technology has helped us also be able to measure that more effectively. But I think it's, you know, if you're not signed up as a marketing leader for a pipeline and or revenue goal, then, you know, I think there's an opportunity there. And to you're not going to work for Jack. <laughs> that sounds a little bit more harsh than I'd say, but yeah, I think that's what marketers need to be focused on and setting those goals in partnership with, you know, with your CRO, with your finance head of finance with your CEO. So everybody knows who's going to contribute, what the levers are. And, you know, you have a comprehensive plan on the go-to-market side. Before I give you the softball at the end, but, you know, as I wonder, what have you seen not work? You know, the things that don't do when you're thinking about demand gen, you're thinking about revenue-oriented marketing. Where are some of the speed bumps? Well, I think that, there's a concept out there, right, that I'm sure I'm not the first person to talk about this, where there's demand creation and demand capture now within kind of demand generation or revenue marketing. And the truth is that 95% of buyers and maybe even less in the current market conditions are not in market for your product right now, right? And so they might not even know that you exist and they might not even know that they even have a problem. And so only about 5% of buyers are in market for your solution. And so I think the wrong thing to do is that if you're only focused always on that 5%, you do need to capture that 5%, right? So you want to be, you know, when they're searching, you want to be there, but you want to be influencing this 95% of other buyers that are not in market right now that are potential buyers for you. And so I think that you can get really stuck when you're in demand gen or revenue marketing on just the demand capture side and not on creating that demand. And so it doesn't mean you have to go out and spend a bunch of money on brand. It doesn't mean you have to go out and, you know, I think, but you do have to be doing something for your brand, whether that means creating amazing content, creating community. How are you becoming known, I guess, to the prospects that don't know about you? So I think the challenge is if you don't pay attention to any of that, eventually you're going to plateau because you're just always going to be constantly in kind of a head-to-head -head battle on capturing demand. And then I think the other kind of challenge is making decisions off of like channel-by-channel -channel performance exclusively is another challenge, right? Like all channels influence each other. The way that a specific channel is performing, I think should be an input into your overall strategy. Not You shouldn't be looking at kind of channels in silos. You should look at channel performance in silos, but you need to then roll that up into a bigger picture to really make good decisions. And so I think that can also be another challenge on the demand gen side is that you're often asked by your board, by your boss, how is this channel performing? What's the ROI of this channel? And so it's really important to paint the picture of how you know the channels all work together and influence each other so you don't get too narrowly focused on you know one thing that is a bigger, you know, part of a bigger picture. So those are some of my thoughts on yeah. I love that. You know, activity in general moves all the things. We're not sure always how, but we hope that we can, you know, figure that out. So that makes, you know, absolutely a ton of sense. And I have experienced 
that first point that you made, I think of it as like 95% of the people are not using your competitor. They're doing nothing. And then maybe they don't even know that this problem exists. Yeah. You know, like inertia and nothingness is our biggest competitor. It's so much easier to do nothing than it is to inspire some action. And then you have to fight against the competitor. There's a really interesting funnel that Cognizant, which is a company out there, came up with on this exact topic where they actually break down that 95% of something along the lines of, you know, these prospects don't even know who you are. These prospects know they have a problem, but they don't know who you are. These prospects might know who you are, but they don't have a problem. These prospects, you know, so how are you influencing all of those different groups, even within the 95%? I think if you're ignoring that completely and you're not thinking about that as part of your strategy, you know, you might be successful for a few quarters, but in the long run, you're just going to plateau, honestly. So I think demand generation marketers need to be thinking about the demand creation, you know, part of the equation. Absolutely. Well said. So, okay, before we go, I like to ask everybody, you know, so we have an audience of leaders of B2B companies like yourself, like myself, what should be on their radar the next two or three years that you have in your head that maybe they don't and just put something on the radar that we think people should pay attention to when they lead a B2B business. This is on everybody's radar, but it leads to my answer to this. So, I mean, again, we are now in an environment where growth at all costs is not, you know, what companies are trying to do. We are trying to maximize productivity, maximize resources and become as efficient as possible. So, you know, we're all looking at everything we're doing through that lens now. And so how that comes out in my world specifically is, you know, from a marketing standpoint, even just going back to that topic we were just talking about, if you don't have all this money, how do you influence these prospects that might not know about you? Like, you know, that sounds really hard and it is very difficult. But one of the ways that we're looking at doing that, you know, from an efficiency standpoint is really owning our own brand and media. And so that means we are doing things like putting out incredible content that are going to help people be better at their jobs. We just launched our own podcast where, you know, we are, our CEO is the host and he's interviewing other B2B SaaS leaders to get insights on how are they operating? What are their learnings from their career? Very similar conversation we're having here with the goal of, you know, interviewing leaders that are, you know, buyers will one day be and are going to learn from and it's inspiring and they, you know, can get a lot of value out of those conversations. We're putting on big event experiences where we might not, you know, spend billions of dollars promoting it, but if we can get the right people in the room and it's really amazing content and our customers can join and feel part of a community. So it really comes down to, from an efficiency standpoint, we still have the opportunity to influence that those prospects, but we need to do that through, you know, our brand. So that's something, you know, we're super focused on, you know, one of the other things that, again, it, might seem obvious, but obviously we all know that customer acquisition is more expensive than growing your current customer base, right? And so I know, you know, in marketing, a lot of times you are actually tasked with more of that net new pipeline, net new business. You know, how can you get, you know, more customers in the door? And that still should be part of marketing's job. You know, we are the headlights of the company. We have to be going out telling that story so we can attract new customers. But there's 
definitely an onus on marketing right now to also be thinking about how can you help your organization expand into the customer accounts that exist. And of course, that's actually a whole, you know, a whole company strategy. You need to have, you need to be able to solve multiple solutions. You know, you can't just rely on companies getting bigger right now. A lot of companies aren't hiring or growing right now. In fact, the opposite is happening. But I think as marketers, it's really important that we are thinking about that expansion, that cross-sell motion and how we can support that because it's going to be an efficient way to grow. So those are some of the things that are top of mind for me as we head into this year. Fantastic. Very well said. I agree with all of those things. And I think we're all facing what you described early on as that sort of more PE type of mindset versus the grow at all costs. And I think it would do well. And I've done well recently, you know, thinking more that way and imagining and talking to folks in the PE space about how they think about business, because that profitability disposition and goal-based disposition, you know, financially really suits better for an environment, you know, like this. And I think it helps understand that. So my guess is you're subconsciously reaching back to that experience a lot these days. (laughs) I almost said that earlier in the conversation is that, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was actually going through all, you know, you learn something in every experience you have, but you're right. Going back to that I got exposure to, you know, what this type of environment, what it can look like and just things that, you know, people will care about when you're looking at efficiency. When we have no money that we can just light on fire, you know, (laughs) (laughs) not that we ever did that. Nobody's looking at right. No, right. Uh, I know. know. Uh, Jack, love this conversation. Thank you so much for coming out. Anybody who's resonating in the audience wants to reach out to you. uh, What channels are best to do that? please connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Jack Foster and I would love to hear from you. And then if you want to check out WorkRamp and learn more about the learning cloud, you can look at workramp.com and I hope you'll do that as well. Thank you so much for coming out. Loved the insights. Great conversation. Thank you so much, Ledge, David, for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun to talk. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.